Let us say once more, and it cannot be insisted upon too frequently and emphatically in this degenerate age, that the perseverance of saints which is depicted in holy writ is not a simple continuance of Christians on this earth for a number of years after regeneration and faith have been wrought in them, and then their being admitted as a matter of course to heaven without any regard to their moral history in the intervening period? No, though that may be how incompetent novices have portrayed it and how antinomians have perverted it, yet such a concept is as far removed from the reality as darkness is from light. The perseverance of the saints is a steady pressing forward in the course on which they entered at conversion and enduring unto the end in the exercise of faith and in the practice of holiness. The perseverance of the saints consists in a continuing to deny self, to mortify the lusts of the flesh, to resist the devil, to fight the good fight of faith. And though they suffer many falls by the way, and receive numerous wounds from their foes, yet if faint, they hold on their way. 2. By insisting that this doctrine encourages loose living. We have heard numbers of Arminians declare, if I were absolutely sure that heaven would be my everlasting portion, then I could drop all religion and take my fill of the world, to which we replied, perhaps you would. But the regenerate feel quite different. They find their delight in one who is infinitely preferable to all that can be found in this perishing world. Yet Arminians never tire of saying that this article of the non-apostasy of the saints is a vicious and dangerous one, affording great encouragement unto those who believe themselves to be Christians, to indulge themselves in iniquities such as Lot, David, Solomon, and Peter committed. It is granted that those who commit such sins and die without repentance for them and faith in the blood of the Lamb have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. It is also a fact that God visited the transgressions of those men with his rod and recovered them from their falls. Nor are such instances recorded in the word to encourage us in sin, but rather to caution us against and make us distrustful of ourselves. Such a growth view as is propounded in the above objection loses sight entirely of the nature of regeneration, tacitly denying that the new birth is a miracle of grace, effecting a radical change within renewing the faculties of the soul, giving an entirely different event to a person's inclinations, to talk of a child of God. Falling in love again with sin is tantamount to suggesting that there is no real difference between one who has passed from death unto life, who has had the principle of holiness communicated to him, who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, and those who are unregenerate. That one who has been merely intellectually impressed and emotionally stirred to temporarily reform his outward conduct may indeed return to his former manner of life is readily conceded. 
but that one who has experienced a supernatural work of grace within, who has been made a new creature in Christ Jesus, can or will lose all relish for spiritual things and become satisfied with the husks which the swine feed on? We emphatically deny. 3. By asserting our doctrine deprives God's people of the sharpest bit which he has given for curtailing the flesh in them. It is affirmed by many Arminians that the most effectual means for restraining their evil inclinations, alike in the regenerate and the unregenerate, is the fear of the everlasting burnings. And from this premise they draw the conclusion that when a person is definitely assured he has been once and for all delivered from the wrath to come, the strongest deterrent against carnality and lasciviousness has been taken from him. There would be considerable force in this objection if God had not communicated to his children that which operates in them more mightily and effectually than the dread of punishment, and since he has, then the argument has little point or weight to it. Whatever influence the fear of hell exerts in curtailing the lusts of the flesh, certain it is that the righteous are withheld from a life of sin by far more potent considerations. Faith purifieth the heart. Acts 15.9 Faith overcometh the world. 1 John 5.4 The scripture nowhere ascribes such virtues to a dread of the lake of fire. An unruly horse needs to be held in by a bridle, but one that is well broken in is better managed by a gentler hand than a biting bit. The case of the saint would certainly be a perilous one if there was no stronger restraint upon his lusts than the fear of hell. How far does such a fear restrain the ungodly? As the nature of a cause determines the nature of its effects, and as a man's conduct will be determined by the most powerful principle governing him, so a slavish fear can produce only slavish observance, and surely God requires something better than that from his people. Such a service as the fear of hell produces will be weak and wavering, for nothing more unsettles the mind and enervates the soul than alarms and horrors. Nabal's heart died within him for fear, First Samuel 25:37, and the soldiers that kept the sepulchre became as dead men for fear, Matthew 28:4. Thus, any obedience from thence can only be a dead obedience. Moreover, it will be fickle and fleeting at the best. Pharaoh relaxed his persecution of the Hebrews when no longer tormented by God's plagues and even gave them permission to leave Egypt. But soon after he repented of his leniency, chiding himself for it and pursued them with murder in his heart. Exodus 14.5 Those hypocrites whom fearfulness surprised remained hypocrites still. Isaiah 33.14 
It is true that believers are bidden to fear him, which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10:28. Yet it should be pointed out that there is a vast difference between fearing God and dreading eternal punishment. In the parallel and fuller passage, Christ added, Yea, I say unto you, Fear him. Luke 12:5. Not fear hell. One of the covenant promises which God has made concerning his elect is, I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Jeremiah 32:40. And that is a filial fear, a respect for his authority, an awesome veneration of his majesty, whereas the fear of the ungenerate is a servile, anxious, and tormenting one. The holy fear of the righteous causes them to be vigilant and watchful against those ways which lead to destruction, but the fear of the wicked is occupied only with the destruction itself. The one is concerned about the evils which occasion God's wrath. The other is confined to the effects of his wrath. But the exercise of faith and the operations of filial fear are not the only principles which regulate the saint. The love of Christ constrains him. Gratitude unto God for his wondrous grace has a powerful effect upon his conduct. 4. By declaring it neutralizes the force of exhortations. The argument used by Arminians on this point may be fairly stated thus. If it be absolutely certain that all regenerated souls will reach heaven, then there can be no real need to bid them tread the path that leads thither. That in such a case, it is meaningless to urge them to run with patience the race set before them. But since God has uttered such calls to his people, then it follows that their final perseverance is by no means sure. The less so seeing that failure to heed those calls is threatened with eternal death. It is insisted upon that exhortations to effort, watchfulness, diligence, etc. clearly imply the contingency of the believer's salvation, that all such calls to the discharge of these duties signify that security is conditional upon his own fidelity, upon the response which he makes unto these demands of God upon him. It should be a sufficient reply to point out that if this objection were really valid, then no Christian could have any firm persuasion of his everlasting bliss so long as he is left upon earth. Hence the inference drawn by Arminians from the exhortations must be an erroneous one. What strange logic is that? Because I am persuaded that God loves me with an unchanging and unquenchable love, therefore I feel free to trample upon his revealed will and have no concern whether my conduct pleases or displeases him. Because I am assured that Christ, at the cost of unparalleled shame and suffering, purchased for me eternal redemption and inalienable inheritance, therefore I am encouraged to forsake instead of to follow him, vilify rather than glorify him. That might be the theology of devils and those they possess. 
but it would be repudiated and abhorred by anyone renewed by the Holy Spirit. How preposterous to argue that because a person believes he shall persevere to the end, that he will therefore despise and neglect everything that promotes such perseverance. Such an argument as the above is tantamount to saying that, because God has regenerated a soul, he now requires no obedience from him, whereas one of the chief ends for which he is renewed is to capacitate him for obedience, that he may be conformed to the image of his Son." So far from the absolute promises of God concerning the everlasting safety of his people, weakening the force of motives to righteousness, they are the very means made use of by the Spirit to stir up the saints and to encourage them in the practice of righteousness and engage them in the continuance thereof. Most certainly the apostles perceived no inconsistency or incongruity between the divine promises and the precepts. They did not judge it meaningless to argue from such blessed assurances to the performance of the duties of holiness. One of them said, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 Those promises were, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters. Chapter 6, verses 16 and 18 And on them he based his exhortation. After saying, Ye are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, another apostle proceeded to urge, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end. And if ye call on the Father, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. First Peter 1, 5, 13 and 17. Apparently, it never occurred to him that such exhortations had been neutralized or even weakened by the doctrine before advanced. 5. By appealing to cases and examples which, though plausible, are quite inconclusive, in order to prove their contention that a real child of God may so backslide as to lose all relish for spiritual things, renounce his profession and die an infidel, Arminians are fond of referring to alleged illustrations of this very thing. They will point to certain men and women who have come before their own observation, people who were genuinely and deeply convicted of sin, who earnestly sought relief from a burdened conscience, who eventually believed the gospel, put their faith in the atoning blood of Christ, and found rest unto their souls. They will tell of the bright profession made by these people, of the peace and joy which was theirs, of the radical change made in their lives, and how they united with the church, had blessed fellowship with the saints, lifted up their voices in praise and petition at the prayer meetings, were diligent in speaking to their companions of their eternal welfare, how they walked in the paths of righteousness and caused the saints to thank God for such transformed lives. But alas! 
these bright meteors in the religious affirmament soon faded out. It is at this point that the Arminian seeks to make a capital out of such cases. He tells of how, perhaps in a few months, the religious ardor of these converts cooled off. He relates how the temptations of the world and lusts of the flesh proved too strong for them, and how, like dogs, they returned to their vomit. The Arminian then alleges that such cases are actual examples of men and women who have fallen from grace who have apostatized from the faith, and by appealing to such, he imagines he has succeeded in overthrowing the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints. In reality, he has done nothing of the sort. He has merely shown how easily Christians may be mistaken, and thus pointed a warning for us not to be too ready to indulge in wishful thinking and imagining all is gold which glitters. Scripture plainly warns us there is a class whose goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. Hosea 6, 4 Christ has told us of those who received the word with joy, yet had not root in themselves. Matthew thirteen twenty and 21 The foolish virgins carried the lamp of their profession, but they had no oil in their vessels. One may come near to the kingdom, yet never enter it. Mark twelve thirty four. In order to make good his objection, the Arminian must do something more than point to those who made a credible profession and afterwards falsified and renounced it. He must prove that a person who is truly regenerated, born from above, made a new creature in Christ, then apostatized and died an apostate. This he cannot possibly do, for none such ever existed or ever will. The fact is that while there are many who in varying degrees adopt the Christian religion, there are very few indeed who are ever born of the Spirit, and the only way in which we may identify the latter is by their continuance in holiness. He who does not persevere to the end was never begotten by God. Nor is that statement a begging of the question at issue. It is insisting upon the teaching of holy writ. The righteous also shall hold on his way. Job 17.9 Observe that it is not he ought to, nor merely that he may do so, but a positive and unqualified shall. Therefore, anyone who fails to hold on his way, be he a religious enthusiast, a professing Christian, or zealous a church member, was never righteous in the sight of God. We will labor this point a little further because it is probably the one which has presented more difficulty to our readers than any other. Yet it should not, for when resolved by the word, all is clear as a sunbeam. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. Ecclesiastes 3.14 This is one of the distinctive marks of the divine handiwork, its indestructibility, its permanency, and therefore it 
is by this mark we must test both ourselves and our fellows. The orthodox doctrine does not affirm the certainty of salvation because we once believed, but certainty of perseverance in holiness if we have truly believed which perseverance in holiness, therefore, in opposition to all weaknesses and temptations, is the only sure evidence of the genuineness of past experience or of the validity of our confidence as to our future salvation. A. A. Hodge Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. John 11.26 said Christ For the life that he gives is an eternal one which the devil himself cannot destroy. See Job 2.6 Thus, unless we acknowledge our mistake in concluding the apostates were once regenerate, we give the lie to the Word of God. 6. By asserting that this doctrine makes all warnings and threatenings a pointless, Arminians argue that if the believer be eternally secure in Christ, he cannot be in any peril, and that to caution him... Against danger is a meaningless performance. First, let it be said that we have no quarrel with those who insist that most solemn warnings and awful threatenings are addressed immediately to the children of God, nor have we the least accord with those who seek to blunt the point of those warnings and explain away those threatenings so far from it, in a previous chapter of this book, we have shown that God himself has safeguarded the truth of the final perseverance of his people by these very measures, and have insisted there are very real dangers they must guard against, and genuine threatenings they are required to heed. So long as the Christian is left in this world, he is beset by deadly dangers both from within and from without, and it would be the part of madness to ignore and trifle with them. It is faith's recognition of the same which causes him to cry out, Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. Psalm 119, Yet what we have just admitted above in no way concedes that there is any conflict between the promises and warnings of God, that the one assures of preservation while the other forecasts destruction. For what is it that God has promised unto his people? This, that they shall not depart from him. Jeremiah 32:40. That they shall hold on their way. Job 17:9 and that to this end he will work in them both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 Granting unto them all sufficient grace. 2 Corinthians 12.9 And supplying all their need. Philippians 4.19 In perfect accord with these promises are the warnings and threatenings addressed to them by which God has made known the inseparable connection there is by his appointment between a course of evil and the punishment attending the same. Those very threatenings are used by the Spirit to produce in Christians a holy circumspection and caution, so that they are made the means of preventing their apostasy. 
Those warnings have their proper use and efficacy in respect of the saints, for they cause them to take heed to their ways, avoid the snares laid for them, and serve to establish their souls in the practice of obedience. Whether or not we can perceive the consistency between the assurances God has made his people and the grounds he has given them to tremble at his word, between the comforting promises and the stirring exhortations, between the witnesses to their safety and the warnings of their danger, certain it is that scripture abounds with the one as much as with the other. If on the one hand the Christian is warranted in being fully persuaded that neither principalities nor powers shall be able to separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and that God shall tread Satan under his feet shortly, Romans 8, 38 and 39, Romans 16, 20. On the other hand, he is bidden to put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Ephesians 6, 12 and 13. And be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. First Peter 5, 8. Yet though the believer is warned, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. It is immediately followed by the declaration, But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above, that ye are able. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and 14. Then let us beware of being wise in our own conceit and charging the Almighty with folly. Because the enemies of the Christian are inveterate, subtle, and powerful, and the exercise of his grace is inconstant, it is salutary that he should live under a continual remembrance of his weakness, fickleness, and danger. He needs to be ever watchful and prayerful, lest he enter into temptation, recalling what befell the self-confident Peter. Because indwelling corruption remains a part of himself while he is left in this scene, it behooves him to keep his heart with all diligence, for he who trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs 27:26. Unmindful of his best interests. We are only preserved from presumption while a real sense of our own insufficiency is retained. The consciousness of indwelling sin should cause every child of God to bend the suppliant knee with the utmost frequency, humility, and fervor. Let not the Christian mistake the field of battle for a bed of rest. Let him not indulge in a slothful profession or carnal delights while his implacable foes, the flesh, the world, and the devil are ever seeking to encompass his ruin. Let him heed the warnings of a faithful God, and he will prove him to be an unerring guide and invincible guard. 7. By drawing a false inference from the divine righteousness, 
Arminians are fond of quoting that God is no respecter of persons from which they argue that his justice requires him to apportion the same retribution unto sinning Christians as he does unto non-Christians who transgress. And since our doctrine gives no place to the eternal punishment of a saint, it is said we charge God with partiality and injustice, that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Psalm 145.17 is contended for as earnestly for by us as by our opponents. But what the Arminian denies is maintained by the Calvinist, and that is the absolute sovereignty of God, that the Most High is obliged to apportion equal punishment to equal faults and equal rewards to equal deservings, cannot be allowed for a moment, being above all law, the framer and not the subject of it. God's will is supreme, and he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. If God bestows a free grace and pardoning mercy to those in Christ, and withholds it from those out of Christ, who shall say unto him, What doest thou? Has he not the right to do what he chooses with his own, to give a penny to him who labors all day, and the same to him that works but one hour? Matthew twenty, twelve through 15. To argue that because God is no respecter of persons, that therefore he must deal with Christians and non-Christians alike, is to ignore the special case of the former. They sustain a nearer relation to him than do the latter. Shall a parent treat a refractory child as he would an insubordinate employee? He would dismiss the one from his service. Must he turn the other out of his home? The scriptures teach that God the Father is tender to his own dear children, recovering them from their sins and healing their backslidings, while he suffers aliens to lie, wallowing in their rebellions and pollutions all their lives. Furthermore, a surety stood for them and endured in their stead the utmost rigor of the law's sentence, so that God is perfectly righteous in remitting their sins. Nevertheless, so that they may know he does not look lightly upon their disobedience, he visits their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Psalm 89.32 Finally, they are brought to sincere repentance, confession, and forsaking of their sins, and thereby they obtain the relief provided for them, which is never the case with the children of the devil. 8. By alleging our doctrine makes its believers proud and presumptuous. That the carnal may wrest this doctrine, like other portions of the truth, to their own destruction, is freely admitted. Second Peter 3.16 But that any article of the faith which God has delivered unto his saints has the least tendency unto evil, we indignantly deny. In reality, the doctrine of the saints' perseverance in holiness, in humble dependence upon God for supplies of grace, lays the axe at the very root of the proud and presumptuous conceits of men, for it casts 
down their high thoughts and towering imaginations concerning their own native ability to believe the gospel, obey its precepts, and continue in the faith and practice thereof. We rest wholly on the goodness and faithfulness of God, the merits of Christ's blood, and the efficacy of his intercession, the power and operations of the Spirit, having no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3, 3. Only the day to come will reveal how many who trusted in themselves and were persuaded of their inherent power to turn unto God and keep his commandments were thereby hardened and hastened to their eternal ruin. Let any candid reader ponder the following question, which is the more likely to promote pride and presumption, extolling the virtues and sufficiency of man's free will, or emphasizing our utter dependence upon God's free grace? Which is more apt to foster self-confidence and self-righteousness? The Arminian tenet that fallen man has the power within himself to turn unto God when he chooses and do those things which are pleasing in his sight or the Calvinist insistence upon the declarations of scripture that even the Christian has no strength of his own that apart from Christ he can do nothing John 15:5 that we are not sufficient of ourselves to so much as think anything as of ourselves second Corinthians 3 5 that all our springs are in God Psalm 87 7 and that because of our felt weakness and acknowledged helplessness God graciously keeps our feet and preserves us from destruction it is just because our doctrine is so flesh-abasing and pride-mortifying that it is so bitterly detested and decried by the Pharisees. By pretending our doctrine renders the use of means superfluous, if Christians are secure in the hand of God and He empowers them by His Spirit, why should they put forth their energies to preserve themselves? But such reasoning leaves out of account that throughout God deals with his people as moral agents and accountable creatures. Rightly did Calvin point out, he who has fixed the limits of our life has also entrusted us with the care of it, has furnished us with means and supplies for its preservation, has also made us a provident of dangers, and that they may not oppress us unawares, has furnished us with cautions and remedies. Thus it is evident what is our duty. Grace is not given to render our efforts needless, but to make them effectual. To say that assurance of final salvation cuts the nerve of enterprises, contrary to all experience, who will work the harder, the man without hope or even a half-expectation, or one who is sure that success will crown his labors? 10. By arguing that our doctrine makes rewards meaningless. If it be God who preserves us, then there is no room left for the recognition of our fidelity or owning of our efforts. If there be no possibility of the saints falling away finally, then is his perseverance incapable of reward by God. 
Answer. Heaven is not something which the Christian earns by his obedience or merits by his fidelity. Nevertheless, everlasting felicity is held before him as a gracious encouragement, as the goal of his obedience. Let it be recognized that the reward is not a legal one, but rather one of bounty in accord with the tenor of the covenant of grace, and all difficulty should vanish. Let this point be decided in the light of our surety's experience. Was it not impossible that Christ should fail of his obedience? Yet did not God reward him? Philippians 2, 10 and 11. So, in our tiny measure, because of the joy set before us, we despise our cross and endure suffering for Christ's sake. And now a word by way of application. Since this article of faith be so much criticized and condemned as a thing fraught with evil tendencies, let the Christian make it his studied business that his conduct gives the lie to the Arminian's objections. Let him make it his constant concern to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Titus 2.10 By taking heed to his ways, giving no license to the flesh, attending to the divine warnings, and rendering glad and full response to his exhortations. Let him show forth by his daily life that this preservation is a continuance in faith, in obedience, in holiness. Let him see to it that he evidences the reality of his profession and the spirituality of his creed by growing in grace and bringing forth the fruits of righteousness. Let him earnestly endeavor to keep himself in the love of God and to that end avoid everything calculated to chill the same and thereby he will most effectually put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. 1 Peter 2.15 In the above discussion, we sought to show how pointless is the reasoning of Arminians in the opposition which they make to this blessed article of the faith. But now in that which follows, we shall seek to demonstrate that their use of Scripture is equally unhappy. If the charges they bring against this doctrine be baseless, if the inferences they draw and the conclusions they make upon it are wide of the mark, certainly their interpretations and applications of Holy Writ concerning this subject are quite erroneous. Nevertheless, they do appeal directly to God's Word and attempt to prove from its contents that one and another of the saints renounced the faith, went right back again into the world and died in their sins, that certain specific cases of such are there set before us of men who not only suffered a grievous fall by the way or entered into a backslidden state, but who totally, finally, and irremediably apostatized. In addition to these specific examples, they quote various passages which they contend teach the same fearful thing. It is therefore incumbent upon us to examine attentively the cases they point to and weigh carefully the passages they cite. 
Before entering immediately into this task, however, one or two general remarks need to be made that the issue between Calvinists and Arminians may be the more clearly drawn. First, it must be laid down as a broad principle that God's word cannot contradict itself. It is human to err, and the wisest of mortals is incapable of producing that which is without flaw. But it is quite otherwise with the word of truth. The scriptures are not of human origin, but divine. And though holy men were used in the penning of them, yet so completely were they controlled and moved by the Holy Spirit in their work, that there is neither error nor blemish in the sacred volume. That affirmation concerns, of course, the original manuscript. Nevertheless, we have such a confidence in the superintending providence of God, we are fully assured He has guarded His own holy word with such jealous care that He has so ordered the translation of the Hebrew and Greek into our mother tongue that all false doctrine has been excluded. Since then, the scriptures are divinely inspired. They cannot teach in one place. It is impossible that the child of God should be eternally lost, and in another place that he may be, and in yet another that some have been so. Second, it has been shown at length in previous sections that God's word clearly teaches the final perseverance of his saints, and that not in one or two vague and uncertain verses, but in the most positive and unequivocal language of many passages. It has been shown that the eternal security of the Christian rests upon a foundation that standeth sure, which Satan and his emissaries cannot even shake, that his everlasting felicity depends ultimately upon nothing in or from himself, but is infallibly secured by the invincibility of the Father's purpose, the immutability of his love, and the certainty of his covenant faithfulness that it is infallibly secured by the surety engagements of Christ, by the sufficiency of his atonement, and by the prevalency of his unceasing intercession, that it is infallibly secured by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, by his abiding indwelling, and by the efficacy of his keeping power. The very honor, veracity, and glory of the triune Jehovah is engaged, yea, pledged in this matter, in order more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. The Most High has gone so far as to confirm it by an oath. Hebrews 6, 17. Thus the indefectibility of the church is made infallibly certain, and no special pleading of men, however subtle and plausible, can have the slightest weight in the balance against it. Third, in view of what has been pointed out in the last paragraph, it should be patent to all honest and impartial minds that the cases cited by Arminians as examples of children of God apostatizing and perishing must be susceptible of being diagnosed quite differently, and that the scriptures they appeal to in support of their contention must be capable of being interpreted in full harmony with those which clearly affirm the opposite.
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.